0: In 19, 1956, a woman named Joy David, Davidman, her visitor visa in the UK was not renewed. Well, lucky for her, she had a friend named C.S. Lewis. They entered into a, uh, a civil agreement, uh, civil marriage, and lived separately in 1956 uh, so that she could stay in the States. They, it was just a matter of expediency, he said, a matter of friendship, he told uh, a friend of his. But in 1956, later that year, in October, she was walking across the kitchen floor and fell and broke her leg, yeah, broke her leg, and had to go to the hospital, and she was diagnosed with uh, uh, terminal cancer. No idea what was happening. So when Lewis found out that she was now had this incurable disease, he realized how much he would be despondent if he had lost her. So this civil agreement that they had, which was uh, them living separately, just a matter of friendship, expediency, he he began to to, to grow to love her and realize, how would I feel if I lost her? So upon hearing that the the sentence was terminal, her, her diagnosis, he says in his diary in March of 1957, one of the most painful days of my life, the sentence of death has passed on to joy, and the end is only a matter of time. Upon leaving the hospital, she enjoyed a brief remission, and they lived together and enjoyed a few years. But she died in, uh, on the 13th of July in 1960. What's interesting about this story is that, Joe's, uh, that C.S. Lewis chose to love Joy, even though, and, and especially more whenever he found out that she, he was going to lose her. What's interesting is that he t- this civil agreement had turned into a true marriage. He deeply loved an object he, he eventually would lose. What that is, is a picture of uh, sacrifice. A picture of, of, of sacrifice, even whenever it is going to cost. Do you know this type of commitment? Do you know this type of commitment that God is calling us into? The book of Ruth, particularly in the place where we find ourselves, uh, in this story, which I'll read the rest of that uh, section for us. It's printed in your bulletin in a second is an ideal narrative for our world. Where breaking covenants is, and not enduring love, that's the new norm. Breaking promises is the norm. Let's read together the rest of that that section that's uh, printed, verses six through 13, and then I'll pray for us. Uh, The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malan, I have brought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and they, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. This is God's word for us. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for, uh, for you preserving your word for us, this great story of, of of covenant love, of covenant faithfulness. I pray that you would remind us this day, uh, especially of your love as we look at, um, at this story, how you are the God who keeps promises, who are faithful to us, even when we are faithless. Lord, I pray that you would open our uh, eyes to see, our ears to hear these words, um, these words of life, this gospel, in Jesus' name, amen. So the question for you is, how difficult is it for you to keep promises when it begins to cost you? To your spouse, to your employer, to your family, to your landlord, especially costs you, for those of you who rent, college students, you know it costs. How difficult is it? Whether we acknowledge it or not, we naturally think when we're coming up to a a commitment, something, a promise that we need to keep or that we need to make, we commonly think, what does it profit me? What will I get out of it? What will it cost me if I choose to do this or choose to do that? What God wants to show us today from his word is a picture of what true love costs, what commitment costs, that patterns his commitment. He wants for you to experience true commitment, his commitment to you so that he might change you and make you the type of people, the type of church that loves despite the cost. What we want to do as we explore this story is look briefly at the context and then look at the outcome of this as we make some application. So let's let's look at the context of this story. First, uh, we'll want to look at the place. In verse one, we find them, uh, Boaz, going up to the gate. Um, and in Israel, it's the entrance of a city or a camp, an opening in the wall through which most everyone passed uh, uh, on their way to the fields to take care of business inside of the walls. This was a place where everybody who went to work, unless they were taking a sick day, um, would pass. Boaz knows that this nearer redeemer, this other person, we'll talk about him in a second, would have to pass through there. Um, And so he knew that this was an ideal place for for the business that he needed to uh, take care of for it to go down. The place isn't just a gate. In Israel, this place was actually where judges would meet, um, where elders would meet to administer a judgment, where the kings would interact with people. Um, It wasn't just a passageway. There were meeting rooms on on either side of the gate, sometimes uh, in some places, pairs of rooms uh, where people would conduct business just like this, where transactions would happen. So the place was strategic. Boaz knows that he's going to encounter him. Um, his choice is strategic. He found everyone he needed to make this proposal um, to the near redeemer um, possible. His choice was strategic. The place was strategic. Well, look, let's look at the people that are involved. Boaz is the first one to arrive. If you haven't read the story of Ruth, we have Boaz and, and Ruth encountering one another and, um, and her... Uh, um, um, him, him promising to her that he's going to resolve her matter. Naomi is so sure that he's going to resolve the matter that uh, that she says that it won't even be before the end of the day and everything will be worked out in your favor. So take heart. Boaz is the first character and he is a a, a, a kinsman of Naomi of Elimelech. And in that day, they would they would if somebody passed away in that line of a husband, somebody would be in line to redeem them. Boaz was the second in line. The first uh, person in line was the next person in our story. His name we don't even get. What's interesting about this story is we get everyone's name except for this guy. He essentially calls him friend, sit down, and he's called a redeemer as well. But uh, he's, uh, some commentators will say that he is not important enough to even be given a name so we can call him Mr. So-and-so. Mr. so and so. He is important to the the flow of the story but his character, who he is, is not uh, important enough to be mentioned here. He is simply a redeemer, uh, another one in line, the first one in line to to have an option to redeem Naomi. We only care about him because he can set the the course on another way. It's as if there's somebody else who a, per, a woman is, or a man are, are engaged to, but they love someone else. This one person, if they choose to marry, will set the course of the rest of the story. And great dramatic uh, romantic comedies are full of this, right? Mr. So-and-so is this next person. Then we get in verse two, the 10 elders they're mentioned because he still needs to actually be made official. And for that to be official, there needed to be people to witness it, People to hold them accountable to the deal itself to rule a party in, a, in accord or out of accord with the law. We see this in Deuteronomy 21. In verse 11, we see that there's a crowd that's gathered to see how this matter is going to be resolved. I like to picture this scene as if it were happening today. Boaz, wealthy uh, bachelor, an old older man, and and uh, and, and how's this matter going to resol- be resolved? Is he going to be with? With Ruth, Is this other guy going to take it? I imagine the paparazzi have come out and are taking pictures at this point. What's gonna happen? There's commotion. All the cultural elites are there and I'm sure it's caused a scene. Maybe Naomi and Ruth are there waiting to see what's gonna happen. There are lots of people and they're interested, interested in seeing how this matter will resolve. Those are the people that are involved. But where it gets interesting is when we begin to see their interaction. So what happens? In verses three and four, we get... Uh, Boaz talking to this near redeemer uh, about a land purchase. He tells him that there's uh, that Naomi's back, her husband is dead, and her children. There's no one else to redeem the land to take it. You're the first one in line to do it. He simply tells him, purchase the land. It's here at your disposal. Um, Proverbs twelve twenty three says that a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Boaz doesn't tell him the entire story. He doesn't tell him what's going to come along with his deal. If he makes this deal to redeem Naomi, to buy this land, there's more to it. He's the near one in line. He has an obligation to restore Naomi. Boaz knew that Mr. So-and-so would take the deal. Who wouldn't take the deal? He has his land, he has his children, his inheritance that he's passing to them. If he buys this land... There is, it's his legal obligation, but if he had the resources for it, but there was only potential gain. If I redeem Naomi, he thinks, then I get the land that's hers. She has no husband, she has no children, then the land essentially would become mine. I get to do it. Naomi, who's beyond ch- typical childbearing age at this point, um, wouldn't need to perpetuate her line, so essentially it would become his. So of course Mr. So-and-so agrees to this deal. Why not? There is great gain, even though the initial investment would be, uh, would be costly. He'd have to purchase it. There would be gain. The first re- agreement wasn't about Naomi, wasn't about Ruth. It was about Mr. So-and-so. And then he lets, us, uh, he lets us know that. He says, of course, I'll redeem it. And then Boaz tells him, marriage and children accompany this deal. Boaz waits for the right moment for Mr. So-and-so to see exactly what's going to happen. Yes, you're getting the land, but you should know that Ruth is still of childbearing age and she's accompanying uh, you in this deal. If you redeem her, if you, if you purchase the land and redeem it from them, you're also getting, um, uh, you're getting Ruth as well. You're getting uh, Naomi as well. You're getting a mother-in-law, mother-in-law which he might not want to get at that point. But he's getting uh, uh, more than he was willing to bargain for. So this is the full deal. Yes, you'll get the land. Yes, you'll be able to, uh, to work that land. Yes, you'll be able to, to, to profit off of it in some way, but that profit that you make is going to uh, come out of your hands. So this is what's happening. If Mr. So-and-so would agree to this deal, he's saying, I'll buy the land, I'll promise to take care of Naomi, her land, her widow daughter-in-law, with the intent of having children with her that would not take my, his name, but the name of Elimelech, Malon, and Kilian." They would be his blood, but they wouldn't be able to perpetuate his line. They would perpetuate the line of another man. They would be entitled to the estate, not him or not his children. He would lose greatly in this deal. He wouldn't acquire the land after Naomi died or or Ruth died. The children would take it, and it would go and continue to perpetuate the line of Elimelech. What a deal, huh? Somebody comes to you with a, a proposal, a business deal, and they say, purchase this land, you think, great, yeah, I'm going to use that land and I'm going to make more money for myself. But what if they say, that's not it. You work it with your hard-earned money, work it, invest your time, your energy into it, um, give your all to this land, and then give the land to another person. Give it to somebody else. You're going to personally lose all of your investment. You're not going to make money on it. You're actually not going to see a return, an apparent return. Most people would naturally move away from this kind of deal, right? Most of us, for those of you who are in business, would recoil and turn away and say, there's no deal. Are you crazy? Who set this meeting up so I can fire them? Why would this person take this deal? There's no apparent return. It is costly. It's tragically costly. It's why the outcome of this story is so beautiful. That's why Boaz's actions are actually so beautiful. It's tragic, see Boaz here, uh, and and as we make some application, Boaz here shows us a picture of a different type of living, a different way to live. When Jesus comes, he tells us that there is a kingdom that he's bringing. And for those of you who've read uh, about the kingdom of heaven, these values that Jesus brings in, they are upside down. That there's one narrative that that, that we hear in the world, and it's preserve yourself. It's attractive. You gain the world by getting more prestige, more wealth, more influence. That's one, uh, uh, one uh, narrative. You protect your investments and protect yourself at all costs. And if you do so, then you win. That's one narrative. The second narrative is actually where grace meets us. This narrative says that life is 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 to be given away. Your resources are actually to be shared. Life is not simply about creating wealth and preserving yourself at all costs. The life in the kingdom could cost you everything, essentially. It's costly. So briefly, let's look at these two narratives. Mr. So-and-so's response is the natural response. Most of us, if this deal had come to our doorstep, we probably would have turned away from this deal um, if we're being wise according to the world's standards. In verses 6 through 8, he says, um, I cannot redeem it. Mr. So and so, Paul Miller says, who writes, it, he wrote a great book about this, if you're interested, um, called A Loving Life. Excellent book. Um, he says that so and so's goal is, is to preserve his capital. His response shouldn't have been, I cannot. If you're ever faced with a, 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 a decision whether you're going to keep your commitment, sometimes you're holding it in your hands and you say, somebody comes and asks for it and you say, I can't do it. Is it it that he can't do it? Or is it that that he won't? He has the capital, but it's going to cost him. It's going to cost him. It should have been, I won't redeem it. I won't redeem it. And this is, I've read commentaries on it, and I don't know why they did it, but the exchange of the sandal, don't ask me. It's just absurd. But that's how they attested to it. My question is, did he walk home on one sandal, you know, or did he give it back? I don't know. Maybe it was the shame of just, all right, I didn't do the deal and I'm walking home with one barefoot. I don't know. So don't ask me about it. You can do some research and if you find out, let me know. But I found out that this is just, as the text says, it's just a matter of attesting in Israel. He gives him his sandal and the uh, the deal was done. So when you're faced with a difficult decision, a choice to be faithful to the difficult person that you chose to marry when they're faced with a difficult decision of keeping promises to you, how do you respond when it gets costly? I guarantee you that if you treat your relationships the way in which Mr. So-and-so treats his commitment here or, or his responsibility to redeem Naomi, you're going to lose greatly. Mr. So-and-so would have gained so much by taking the deal, but it wouldn't have been this, uh, this monetary gain that he was concerned with. He didn't love in a biblical way. He showed greater love and concern for himself than he did for, uh, uh, for a responsible party that he was uh, called to love. He showed greater love for himself. When it comes to love and sacrifice that love requires, how do we respond? The cultural response to commitment um, is usually self-centered, right? It's usually, what do you get out of it? Um, David Brooks wrote a recent article in the New York Times and said that is was, was a satirical article, but he basically says, I know you've heard that it's impossible for you to love somebody else if you're just completely self-centered. He says, I'm here to tell you that that's a lie. You can be completely self-centered and be loving at the same time. Of course, it's satirical because you know that's not true. If your primary goal is, is to uh, love self, then you're never in a p- position to actually love others well. It's satirical because that's exactly uh, what we, the way we function in society. Y'all you have know, heard this before. Maybe it's, uh, I mean, a lot of you probably don't listen to rap music, but this is essentially what rap music says. Do you. Get yours. Make money. At all costs, whatever it takes, don't lose. You win. And if you win, that, then you'll be happy. You've probably heard this advice. You've probably given it to others. But I guarantee you, if, if you are, you're just listening to these rap songs, whether you l- listen to them or not. Get yours. Tim Keller says that true covenant love is always costly. True commitment, true covenant faithfulness is always costly. There are no two ways about it. He says, anything that is truly worthwhile takes fight to keep and to maintain. He goes on to say, Uh, Jesus restates his principle when he says, whoever wants to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's saying, if you seek your happiness more than you seek me, you will have neither. But if you seek to serve me more than you serve your happiness, you will have both. What Boaz does here is he shows us a different type of uh, a, a different way to live. He knows what it's going to cost, and he says in verses 9 and 10, he goes on and restates this, but he says, I will be the one to redeem it. I will redeem it. There's another way to live. It's not simply about propping yourself up and creating uh, more and gaining more. It's actually about loving sacrifice for those that God has put in our care. There's a different way to live. Commit and come through. Boaz says, I know what it costs. I know that I'll lose my money. I'll know that I'll lose my investment. I know that I'll have to perpetuate the name of another man, but I don't care. I will lose it all and more for the sake of this object of my love, which is Ruth. You see, this is a picture of steadfast love, a picture of faithfulness. What Boaz does is shows us an act of faithful love, one of the great acts of faithful love, covenant faithfulness in the midst of the scriptures. Paul Miller in his book uh, uh, that I referenced earlier says that Boaz's goal is Ruth. His goal is her, spending his capital on an object of his love. And he goes on and says, at the heart of love is incarnation that leads to death. Death is actually at the center of love. At the heart of love is an intentional downward movement for the sake of others around us. It's a loss of our own comforts. It's a loss of our feelings, our desires, uh, at times, a loss of a place of sacrifice, loss for the sake of another. Jesus says in Matthew, uh, Mark eight thirty five, that whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will live, will gain. Jesus promises us that if we f- we live our lives with actions like these, you're not actually losing; you're actually gaining. You live a life of sacrifice. You're actually gaining. You're gaining. Jesus uh, Keller says at one point, Jesus always demands more, but he always offers more. So when we're faced with a decision to make that sacrifice, to let it go, um, sometimes we hold on to it because we think, oh, I'm going to lose. I'm not going to get a return on this. And Jesus says, I'm I'm calling for you to give it. And if I call for you to give it, I always give more in return. I always do. But this story, as it calls for us to respond to it, is, is, uh, is not simply about us. It's not simply about uh, Boaz and Ruth, even though it's a great love story that if we were there watching it, as we read it, we think, oh, this is what great drama love stories are made of, right? But it's not simply about Boaz and Ruth. You see, in chapter 3, Boaz says, uh, as she's, as, as uh, Ruth has pursued him, she's, he, he makes her happy. He says, you, you've essentially made me happier now in my old age than uh, in giving me this kindness of coming toward me. He says, uh, I, I'm winning. I may have to sacrifice, but I get you as a wife. She's attractive. She's young. And he thinks, I, I'm actually winning. So he will, in some sense, as he sacrifices, be gaining. But the story is not simply about Ruth and Boaz. And verse 17 of chapter 4, um, uh, it goes on and says, and the woman of the neighborhood, gave him a name as they conceived, uh, and they bore a son. And they said, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Boaz became you now the grandfather of, uh, uh, a great-grandfather of, of David. He's the father of David. Well, who, is, uh, who are all these stories about? Who is the Bible about? It's not simply about Boaz. Boaz had a significant role here as he chose to redeem it, but he came into the line of the Redeemer. Who's the son of David? Jesus. Jesus was born according to this line that he perpetuated. It was not cut off. God preserved them. You see, the story is not simply about Boaz coming through. The story is about God coming through. Boaz had an attraction to Ruth. It was great. He got a, a, a wife who he could love and who would love him in return who had proven her commitment, her, her willingness to be faithful to Naomi when she didn't have to. You see, she could have stayed uh, on the sidelines back in, in, in Moab and could have gone back to her family. But she tells Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you, Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I'm clinging to you. This is attractive. Of course, Boaz is like, man, that that's a great wife. Of course I want that. But you know what's awesome is that uh, uh, the gospel comes into uh, to us. What makes it attractive? What makes us attractive to God? Is it our beauty? What makes us attractive to God? Is it our put-togetherness? What makes us attractive to God? Is it our youth? Is it what we offer Him? What makes us attractive? Well, in reality, someone said that the only thing we bring to God is, uh, that we have is our sin. <laughs> what do we have to offer him? Absolutely nothing. Why does God love us? Why does he love you? Why did he send Jesus to die for you? Is it because you're attractive? Absolutely not. It's because he wants to make you attractive. You could never earn it, but he makes a great sacrifice to redeem you. You see, Boaz is a small picture of what God would do. I had us read 1 John in our, our New Testament reading because that's the simple point is, God loves us even when we're unlovable. He loves you. When all your other loves that you run to retreat and fail you, God comes in and says, I will never fail you. I will never retreat. No matter how ugly and despicable you become. Why? Because the object of, 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 of his love, the thing that he prized most, his second person of the Trinity here, uh, Jesus, he gave him up for us so that he might redeem us. You see, Boaz and, and Ruth in this story are only a small picture of, uh, of promise-making and promise-keeping. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that since God could promise and make promises and swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. He swore to redeem And God comes through in his promises. You see, we've encountered, if you're in Christ, the greatest act of loving kindness, of covenant faithfulness in Jesus. We weren't redeemed because we were faithfully working for the sake of others, acting like Boaz here or anyone else. Um, We were faithfully working only for ourselves. We were still trying to gain so much for ourselves selfishly, but God came to us when we were still sinners. And he sent his son to die for us God loved you and loves you at your worst so that he might redeem you and make you into the version of yourself that reflects his self-giving love. That's what this story is about. If you know Jesus, then that's what he offers. That's what he offers. He loves us so that we might become the people that love others at great cost to ourselves. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this story, Lord, this picture that points us forward to, uh, to your, your gospel, Lord, this promise that you made to redeem us, to save your people. Lord, even though we had turned aside, all of us, gone our own way, no one was good. Lord, you laid our iniquity on Jesus. He bore the cost for our sin. And so we pray, Lord, that that great picture of your covenant keeping, your promises being kept, Lord, that, that would change us that we would know that it costs you everything to redeem us so that we wouldn't recoil when we know that something, some commitment is gonna cost. Lord, may we become the type of people who love even at great expense, especially at great expense to ourselves. And we know, Jesus, that you did that for us. And so help us to rest in your great sacrifice more and more. Um, and especially as we come to a table that represents that meal, uh, this meal that represents your sacrifice. Lord, may, we, uh, may you feed us <laughs> By this gospel truth. In Jesus' name. Amen.